It'll be on the screen if you're not there. Mark 14. Last week we looked at the end times. And so this is, Jesus has about two days left in his life. Things are coming to a head. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table at the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. We're going to look at three different contrasts in this story. The first one you see is that there's a contrast of conviction. The contrast is between the religious leaders and this woman who we know from John's gospel. It's a parallel as Mary. So we're just going to call her Mary, even though Mark doesn't tell her name. So there's a contrast between the religious leaders and Mary. The religious leaders had an opinion. They had feelings. They had beliefs about Jesus. They thought he was a heretic. They thought he was demonized. They thought he was a blasphemer. They thought he was corrupting the nation. That was their perspective. You can read through the Gospels, and that's what they think. As the more he does, the more hostile they become towards him to the point that they're trying to kill him. So that's their, their, their view of him totally negative. However, they don't act on those beliefs. They're afraid of the crowd. Kind of what's going on, this is a feast three times a year. If you were able, you were supposed to, tra- if you were a Jew, you were supposed to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate one of these feasts. The normal population is about 50,000 during this week. There's probably 250,000 people. So you kind of have the group dynamic thing going where everybody's a little bit more anonymous. You've got a bunch of folks from out of town, so maybe the inhibitions are down a little bit. And the theme of the festival is deliverance. It's it's reminding the Jews are celebrating and remembering God delivering them from Egypt back in Exodus. If you remember that story, they're in bondage in Egypt and God, the plagues and all of that stuff, crossing the Red Sea. That's what this festival is about. Now they're under Roman oppression, so they're wanting a deliverer. We've talked about that. They're looking for a Messiah, someone to deliver them from Roman oppression. So you've got this, those dynamics, this group think going on, plus this, the, this uh, desire for a Messiah. And you could, it's probably a bit of a powder keg. It's probably people are probably feisty and maybe more so than usual. And so you can maybe say, I can see why the chief priests and the teachers of the law were nervous about arresting Jesus. But again, if that's your job, if your job is kind of spiritual police and you're trying to keep people kind of on this straight and narrow and there's someone who you think is a heretic and a blasphemer and full of demons and he is corrupting your nation, I don't know how you don't act on it. It it doesn't make, I, I don't get that. So whatever they thought, they didn't believe it enough to actually do something about it. And you see that contrasted with Mary. Mary, um, Jesus is her teacher, her rabbi, her Lord. I think she knows that he's the son of God. Her sister Martha knows that, and I, I think that's probably a, um, an idea that Mary shared as well. She, break, she doesn't break in. She invites herself into this uh, meal. Women would, would not have been allowed at a meal like this. She finds out where Jesus is, finds out where his disciples are. She comes in. She's uninvited. I don't think they're bouncers at the door or anything, but she comes in uninvited walks in, she has this jar, alabaster jar of perfume, breaks it, just breaks it at the neck, and dumps it on Jesus' head, which would probably make people uncomfortable. Imagine if somebody walked in right now with a jar 
broke it open and dumped it on someone's head. We're probably all going to stare. And in John, it says she dumped it on his head and on his feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. And that makes everybody uncomfortable to see something like, seriously, think, I mean, that's what's going on here. That's what she's doing. Women were not supposed to let their hair down in public, so that's a big no-no, much less wipe somebody's feet with them. So she has this conviction about who Jesus is. She says he's the Lord, he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah, he's my teacher. She, you could make a case, I think, that she probably loves him more than anybody else that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every time you see Mary, she's kneeling at Jesus' feet. You could, again, make a pretty strong case that she loves him as much, if not more so, than anyone else. And she acts on that conviction. She goes to a, this dinner where she's not invited, and then she breaks open this perfume, which would have been her, that's her inheritance. It's a family heirloom passed down from her parents, and it's her nest egg. Single women were, were vulnerable. Poor single women were even more so. And what she's done, it says it's worth a year's wages, so you calculate how much you make in a year and then dump that on somebody's head. That's what she did. That was her security blanket. If she ever got into a tough financial situation, if for whatever reason she was not able to marry, that's what she would have had to pay the bills, to eat, to get by. And she dumped it all on Jesus. Again, you see the difference there in the level of conviction. The religious leaders thought some things about Jesus, but they were unwilling to, make a, to risk actually acting on their convictions. Mary didn't have that issue at all. Verse 4, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. I, I tell you the truth, whenever, wherever excuse me, the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So we have a contrast of conviction. That's the first one. This is a contrast in perspective. That Jesus and the disciples see the exact same event from two radically different perspectives. They're wearing a different set of glasses. The disciples are indignant at the waste. We don't really use that word indignant. Maybe you can think offended, uh, if that's maybe an easier word for you to grab onto. It's used a few times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, excuse me, um, Jesus is indignant when the 12, when his disciples don't allow children to come to him. The Pharisees are indignant when Jesus heals on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. The Pharisees are indignant when Jesus allows children to worship him. You're not supposed to worship a guy. You're supposed to worship God. And he's indignant that Jesus doesn't, they're indignant that Jesus doesn't stop. Um, the other 10 disciples are indignant when James and John ask Jesus for special seats, for seats of honor in the kingdom of God. So that's, that's kind of the, those are the contexts where you see that word. So again, I think offended maybe for us is a good way of seeing that. This, is, this isn't right. There's a little bit of anger uh, as well as displeasure with what she's doing. And the disciples, they, they go after her pretty hard. They rebuke her harshly. That is, they scold her. They shame her. This whole thing about you could have given this money to the poor, that's just a spiritual baseball bat they're trying to hit her with. They're trying to make her feel guilty for what she's done. They'd say... Um, this is me standing back. Up until this point, the disciples don't really have everything together. They're jockeying for position. They're trying to figure out who's number one, who's number two, who's number three. And then here comes this woman, uninvited guest, in this very public, extravagant act of devotion to Jesus. I think 
that they feel like she one-upped them. That's what I think is going on. They don't, it's not that they don't care about the poor, but that's not the issue. They're using that, again, as a spiritual billy club just to hit her over the head because they don't want to say, you made us look bad. And that's what's going on. She made, in their mind, she made them look bad. They're looking at everything from a very limited perspective. They say this is a waste. To waste something is to disregard the value of it. What they're saying is this perfume that you had, you wasted it on Jesus. These are his 12 closest friends. And they said you wasted that gift on him. Pretty tough if you're Jesus to hear that, right? Your 12 closest people say she just wasted her perfume or this gift on you. They're, again, their perspective is totally skewed. I think a lot of it is because she has, again, she's, they're defensive because of what she's done. And it's, they're rocked back on their heels. And the way they come, they just come at her to try to tear her down rather than trying to see what she's done for what it is. And on the other hand, you have Jesus and his response, totally different. He defends her. He says, leave her alone. He comes to her defense. He calls it a beautiful thing. They say it's a waste. He says it's a beautiful thing. That is actually good work would be a better translation of that. Those things aren't synonyms. We don't normally say waste and good work are synonymous with one another. Again, that shows how different their perspective is on this event. They're both seeing the same thing, two different angles. And then he says this thing, I think, is just to validate what she's done. Everywhere the gospel is preached, this story is going to be told. You know where the gospel's been preached? Just about everywhere there is for the last 2,000 years. And this story has been told. But we don't know her name. If all you had was Mark, you wouldn't know her name. We know her name from John. And in John, we don't read the statement, this will be told forever. It's pretty interesting to me. It's this deed that he wants. It said it's going to be told in memory of her, but we don't know who her is if this is the only story we have. I think what Jesus is trying to say is he's trying to divorce this act from the personality. Mary becomes famous in a, in a few years, and he's trying to say it's not about her being famous. It's about what she did. This is the thing for all of you. Do you see the way she acted? This devotion that she expressed, that's what he's wanting to push out there for everyone. And again, it shows how wrong the disciples' perspective was that they're they're trying to shut her down, saying, you've wasted it, you missed it, this would have been better spent on the poor. And Jesus says, actually, what she did is so good and so right, I'm going to make sure everybody always knows about it. Last, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So he had a Contrast in conviction, a contrast in perspective, and last is a contrast in method or methodology, whichever word that you like. I'm going to give you best case scenario on Judas. Let's say he wasn't just in it for the money. He got 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus, but let's say he wasn't in it for the money. He had some type of, he had grander motives or purer motives than that. What you could say, he was all in with Jesus being the Messiah. He said Jesus is the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's going to rescue our people from this oppression that we're under. Jesus keeps talking about dying, which doesn't fit the picture of who the Messiah is. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs kill the bad guys. You can't kill the bad guys when you're dead. Jesus, again, referenced his death just now. She did this to prepare me for burial. What you could say is what Judas was doing was he was trying to force Jesus' hand. He was trying to push him out of the closet, 
and make him be the Messiah he knew he was. So he sets up this confrontation with the chief priests and the religious leaders. He forces Jesus, what he's thinking is, I'm going to make Clark, I'm going to make David Banner become the Incredible Hulk. Isn't that his name, David Banner? Y'all don't remember Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Bigsby? Okay. Whatever his name is, that's what we're trying to do. You're not going to like me when I'm angry. That's what Judas is trying to push here. You've been this mild-mannered Messiah. I'm going to force you into this confrontation that's going to make you stand up and fight. He's, he agrees with the goal. I like the end line. I like what we're going for. He doesn't like the path. He doesn't like the plan. And so he forces his own. That's what Judas is trying to do. Again, Jesus is the Messiah. Got it. You're going to deliver Israel. Got it. Love all of that. Don't like the way. And so I'm going to force this confrontation to make you do things my way. On the other hand, you have Mary. Again, in my opinion, you can make a case that nobody loves Jesus more than her. She can't be happy about the fact that he's going to die. But she submits. She, I'm thinking, like in our Christian lingo, she was led to, to do this. I don't think she just had not. I think she was led to do what she did by the Lord. However you want to phrase that. She didn't know what she was a part of. She was just being obedient to this leading. And it prepared Jesus for his burial. And she was willing to do that. To let God's plan unfold God's way. So we have a contrast in conviction between Mary and the religious leaders. She believed what she believed enough to actually do something about it. They didn't. You have this contrast between the way the disciples saw this action. If they were indignant over the waste and the way Jesus saw it, he was blessed at this beautiful thing. And then you also see this contrast in terms of the method. Jesus trying, Judas trying to force God to do things his way, Mary submitting to God's plan. So here's what I want you to do. Everybody should have an outline, right? Kim has some if you don't. There's three questions at the bottom. You should have a pen near you and the crack in the seat. And we're going to answer these three questions. You're not going to turn it in to me. I'm not the principal or the teacher. I just want to force, for lack of a better word, you to interact with what we're doing. So there are three questions at the bottom. Does anybody not have one? A lot of people. First question, what do you feel strongly enough to act on? What do you feel strongly enough about to act on? What do you feel deeply enough that it will push you to actually do something about it? This is a conviction question. If I polled everyone in the room, I'm 100% confident everybody in here would say human trafficking is wrong. But very few, if any of us, actually do anything about it, which I think is actually okay. In our Christian world, sometimes we talk about the things that are on God's heart and that we want those things that break his heart to break ours. The reality is he's infinite and we're not. And if he dumped on us everything that breaks it, we wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. It would be too much. We each get a slice. Every one of us has some little slice of things that God cares about. 
and that you care about as well? And that's what I'm asking in that first question. What, if you can do the metaphor, what's worth you spending your perfume on? If you've got this jar of perfume, what are you willing to waste it on? The parable of the talents. God, Jesus says he give, there's, a, there's a master. He gives one guy, one servant, five talents, which is a lot of money. One guy, two, which is a little bit less. And one guy, one. And he goes away, and then he comes back and says, what did you do with what I've given you? We've all been given resources. And think beyond money. You've been given skills, gifts, relationships, opportunities, time. You have been given money. Under that umbrella of resources, what's worth you spending those things on? What are you willing to, again, quote, unquote, waste those on? Outwardly, it may look like waste. If you're an emotional type person, maybe a question for you is what makes you cry? What may, maybe not could be sad, it could be kind of righteous indignation because things are so wrong. What stirs you that way? If you're not emotional, that's not a helpful question for you. So write it down. You can't write down more than two things. It's interesting to me that the disciples call this a waste. You can't waste anything on Jesus. If waste is disregarding the value, but his is infinite. With a straight face, he says, I'm worth your life, repeatedly. He looks people in the eye and says, I'm worth dying for. If that's the truth, then he's absolutely worth everything less than that. So whatever, whatever's under your resource umbrella, recognize it's not a waste if you're investing it in the things that he cares about. It's not a waste at all. For Mary, I'm thinking the whole thing was two or three minutes tops. Twelve months' salary gone in two or three minutes. And he says, it's beautiful. This was a good thing that she did. That should encourage you when you're thinking about these things that stir you. Second question, what could it look like to act upon that convic conviction? Not what will it look like, what could it look like? So this is creativity, you're dreaming a little bit. To me, some of the, the, five, some of the to me, five best words in the Bible. She did what she could. That's what Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for heroes and superheroes. He's not looking for people to do these extraordinary things for him. He's looking for people to do what they can do. That's what he says to Mary. All of us have limits. Whether you have one talent or two or five, you have one or two or five. We all have limits. Some of us we feel like we have more limitations than others, but that doesn't matter. We're all bounded. We're finite. We have limitations, and Jesus doesn't ask us to do things beyond that necessarily. He's saying, what can you do? This woman, Mary, she had one jar of perfume. She didn't have two. She had one, and she gave what she had. Some of you remember the story of the little boy feeding the 5,000. There's probably 12,000 people on a mountain, 5,000 men, 5,000 women, 2,000 kids. They've been there. The disciples go to Jesus and say, you've got to cut everybody loose. Everybody's hungry. He says, you feed them. They say, we don't have the food. 
what do you have? And one little boy's got a lunch, five loaves of bread and two fish. Gives it to Jesus, and he multiplies it. Feeds all these guys, so much so that the disciples each have a basket left over. That little boy did what he could. What he could do was share his lunch. He gave it to Jesus. He didn't give him six loaves of bread because he didn't have six. He had five, but he also didn't give him four. There's a, that, this idea of doing what you can provides context. For some of you, the thing that stirs your heart is this massive issue. And when you think about working in that area, it, just, it depresses you because you think, what? I can't make a difference. You're pro-life, and you think, God, you know how many abortions there are just in this city every year? I can't. How am I, what, is my little, what is my two hours a week at Cobb Pregnancy Services? What's that going to do? What's me mentoring one girl, at 15-year-old girl at Marietta High School? How is that going to make a dent in this massive thing that's going on? You're looking the wrong way. God's not saying, look at your issue. He's saying, look at what you've got. What can you do? Some of you can organize, some of you can host, some of you can promote, some of you can inform. Do those things. Host a golf tournament. Do a 5K. Have people over for dinner. Mentor somebody. Become a foster parent. Whatever. What can you do? That's what he's looking for. Again, he's not looking for heroes. He's looking for regular people who are willing to say, this is what I've got. I've got one lunch. What can you do with one lunch? Well, it turns out he can feed 12,000 people with it. It's pretty good. So what can he do with what you will give him? Think that way. So what could it look like? Write that down. What could it look like for you to act on your conviction? interesting to me. I don't think Mary knows what's going on. And what Jesus says is, this thing is anointing me for my burial. If you, When we get to the crucifixion in a few weeks, you'll realize Jesus was not, when after he was crucified, he was taken down, he wasn't anointed. That's not a big deal for us. It was a huge deal for them to not be anointed before you were buried. She, What she did was prepared him for that. I don't think she knew that. And I think that's how things work for us a lot of the time. We get one little slice of the picture. God's up here at 10,000 feet. He can see everything. We can't. We get this one little slice, and we wonder, how does my one little thing make a difference? How does this one phone call, this one lunch, again, the hour or two that I have to give, how does any of that make a difference in this larger picture? I don't know. But somehow, he's able to work all of those things together, and that's why it's so important for us to be faithful to do what we can. He's got, he's got this. We see this. And if we're faithful with this, our little bitty part, we can trust that he's working something much bigger, just like he was with Mary. She had no idea what she was a part of at the time. She just did the thing that she could. And the same thing is true from us. So again, that should encourage you. Don't look at how small or how insignificant what you can do is. That's the wrong perspective. It's, it doesn't matter. It's one boy's lunch. 
And how many billions of people have heard the story about one boy's lunch? Because he did what he could do. And the same thing will be true for what you can do as well. Last question. Are you willing to fail? And that's in quotes on the outline. Are you willing to fail? We've said before, in the kingdom of God, or in God's economy, the way he grades, obedience is success. Disobedience is failure. The only way to fail with God is to disobey him. If you're obeying, you always win. You're successful regardless of results. It's interesting. If you go back and you look at the major figures in the Bible, I'll say almost everyone. I think it's everyone, but I'll say almost just in case you can come up with an exception. Almost every one of them kind of gets gut punched along the way by God. It ha- Here, Abraham, here's this promise. You're going to have a son, and through him, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. 25 years he's waiting on this promise to be fulfilled. He finally has Isaac. And what does God say? Why don't you go up that mountain and kill him? Nice. Moses, you're going to lead my people out of bondage. First, go spend 40 years in a desert. Joseph has this dream about his, brothers and, about his brothers and his mom and dad bowing down. He shouldn't have said anything, but he did. He told them what happens. They sell him into slavery, falsely accused of rape, thrown in prison, and forgotten about. Great for him as well. David, not looking for anything, minding his own business, taking care of some sheep. Samuel comes, anoints him, you're going to be the king. Spends the next 10 to 12 years running in the wilderness because Saul's trying to kill him. Jesus at his baptism, you're my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. He hears that from heaven. What happens immediately after? Driven into the desert, don't eat for 40 days, and you're tempted by Satan. And even what we're about to look at, you're the Messiah. You're going to deliver Israel. And the way you're going to do it is by dying on that cross. There's this, this element. Again, I would say it's universal, but maybe you can come up with an exception. This universal element that, as we begin to walk down the road that God has for us, whatever this thing is that you're convicted enough about to actually do something, whatever that is, you feel it deep enough that it motivates you to action. You're willing to put some skin in the game. You're willing to use your resources addressing this. Then you begin to step out doing whatever it is that you can do, whether you think that's grand or not, you're doing that. Count on the bus coming from the side. It's coming, and it will hit you. It's not meant to kill you, but it will feel like it. It's always painful, almost always humiliating, because it looks like failure. Can you imagine if Mary's in the food stamp line a few weeks after this? The people saying, well, I told you. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have done that. You should have saved that. That was poor stewardship. You wasted that money, and now look at you. You don't have anything to eat. Outwardly, she might look like a failure. God's perspective is completely different. But that doesn't change the fact of all the whispering that goes on when we appear to have failed. And we all need to be ready for that because it's going to come. Again, it's not meant to kill you just to get close because God is doing some things in your heart. He's changing your character. You see that with Abraham, with David, with Joseph, with Moses, not with Jesus. Everybody else you see, he's working on their characters during this difficult time of their life. And he does the same thing for us because we're much more like those guys than we are like Jesus. We all have room to grow. And so it's that death time where that happens. And we all have to be willing to, again, quote, unquote, fail. And it will feel like failure. And you need to know that. It's not, this isn't 
once upon a time, real life feels like failure. The money's gone. The job is gone. The whatever I'm doing, nobody showed up. Like, it's real. It's against, this isn't movie stuff. It's going to hurt, and it, again, most likely will be embarrassing for you. The thing for us is when that comes, what are you going to do? Are you going to push on or are you going to pull back? We talked last week about the danger in letting signs direct us. And this is why it's dangerous. If signs direct Joseph, he gives up in jail. God's forsaken me, I'm out. If signs direct Moses, then when he's in the desert, he's out. God's given up on me. You can't do that. If signs direct David, then he's not the king. He hasn't been anointed, Saul is. You can't allow those things to push you around. You've got to know what you know. That's why the first question is, what are you so convicted about you're actually going to do something? That's deep. That's foundational. The rest of this stuff is on the top of it. And if you know that, you stick to it. This is for very few of you, a handful of you in the room. You're in the fog. You don't know how to move forward, and this is what you need to know. You, you don't go forward until you get a word as clear as your last one. If the last thing you felt like God spoke to you was move straight ahead, don't quit going straight ahead until you hear him say something else. Don't allow the circumstances to cause you to go to the left or the right. It's not, you're going to miss it. Again, that's a very small subset of you who are in the fog. The rest of us, we're kind of back here and we're looking at all this stuff from outside. For us, what are you so convicted of you're willing to do? You're actually willing to invest yourself into. And you don't have to think super spiritual. It might not... In your mind, it might not be a spiritual thing at all. Don't worry about that. What motivates you? And let's talk about that. What could it look like for you to act on that conviction? Again, don't think super spiritual. You don't have to, doesn't have to be explicitly a Christian thing. Just what could it look like? And then last question is, are you willing to quote unquote fail moving forward with this thing? Let's pray. Two groups. One, if you're that small subset, four or five people who are in the middle of the fog, I just want to encourage you to hang on to what you know. When it's time for you to know something else, you'll know it. And until you do, stick with what you've got. can absolutely ask God how to move forward. You don't have to keep banging your head against a brick wall. But there's a difference between asking God how to move forward and asking him if you can quit and go home. For the rest of us, that's not where we are. God, my prayer for us, one, that we would know what we know, that you would you would reveal to us our own hearts. Sometimes we don't even know ourselves. I asked, what are you deeply convicted about? And the people, I don't have any idea what I'm deeply convicted about. God, I pray that you would show us that. Let us know. For some of us who are very rational and we argue you to death every time we feel like something's put in front of us. God, I pray you would speak to us when we're asleep. Give us dreams. 
so we can't argue with you. But for every man and woman in this room, whether they ever come back to this room or not, my prayer is that they would know what you put them on this earth to do. And they would begin to do those things. And so, Lord, I pray for creativity. What does it look like to act on our convictions? Help us think beyond maybe some of the tired things that we've seen. Show us what we can do and what you're expecting of us. All of us have gifts and talents and resources. Show us how to bring those things to bear on these issues that are, are these things that are important to us and that are important to you. And so I pray for creativity. And lastly, God, I pray that we would trust you enough that we'd be okay failing. Everybody else might say, this, that was a huge waste. And God, I pray in the midst of that we would hear you say that you thought it was beautiful. We would trust you enough to hang on for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is what we're going to do. You guys can stand up. Brandon's going to close us with a song of worship. We'll have prayer teams up front. If you want prayer for anything, we'd love to pray.